0: In your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24. At this time we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church, so if you have little kids who are uh, pre-K fours up till third grade and you want to meet uh, Sierra in the back. Now one thing I've been asked, asked to point out, if you're new, maybe you're visiting today or you've been a couple of times and you've not yet registered your kids, signed up, let us know that you're here. Uh, you can join your kids in the back, sign up, and you come right back to the the service when you're done. That'll be helpful to us just we have matched the right kid with the right parents. Very important. Well, we are in the last Sunday of our sermon in the life of David, the gospel according to David. I think it's been a good series. I hope it's been helpful to you. We've seen Jesus so clearly through the life of David, and I hope it's been an encouragement to you. So we're going to finish up on a rather inauspicious ending david and the census what could possibly be interesting about a census i guess we'll see second samuel chapter 24 read the whole chapter this is god's word again the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he incited david against them saying go number israel and judah So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab And the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurorar and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide a- what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And while the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, "'Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite.' So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face on the ground. And Aruna said, "'Why has the Lord the king come to his servant?' David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let the Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledge, sl- sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague Was averted from Israel. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for this amazing story from the life of David. We pray that you would show us your mercy, show us your righteousness, show us your holiness, that we might serve the world in gratitude for all the grace that you've given to us in Jesus. Hear our prayer, for we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a little bit of a visual illustration this morning. Do you know what this is? It is a box. Thank you, Kate. The rest of you are allowed to speak. Do you know what is in the box? Well, let's see. It's like Christmas in April. We have a lot of things in the box. Ooh, this is kind of a cool thing in the box. This is a, a cross that hangs on the off, uh, my office wall. It's made of uh, nails from the railroad. An artist in Fairhope who was a recovering drug addict made this cross, and it's very, very meaningful to me. I think it's very beautiful. And so the cross is with me in the box. Here's something else that's in the box. Do you see this? you see what this might be? This is a crown of thorns. I wish there was a cool story about this. I bought it on Amazon. (laughs) Let's see what else we got in the box. Well, we have my study Bible in the box. As you see, it's very thick. It also doubles as a human shield. If anyone were to attack me, I think this thing could stop a bullet. It has many, many notes. ESV study Bible. I highly recommend it. We also have several names of God in the box. We have Jesus Christ, that's one of the names of God, second person in the Trinity. We have Heavenly Father, God is our Father, that's one of the names of God. We have Holy Spirit, this is one of the the names of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here we have, written in Hebrew, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's name in the Old Testament, His covenant name. Here we have Elohim. That's one of the names of God, also written in Hebrew. Here we have written in Greek, Theos. This is one of the names of, of God in the New Testament, New Testament Greek. We have many names and many symbols and artifacts that point us to God. God crosses and crowns of thorns and names of god in fact if we got a bigger box we could probably fit a whole thomas kincaid painting in the box i thought about bringing a live dove and maybe sort of releasing it to uh symbolize the holy spirit but i thought better of it at the last moment Uh, if there's one thing i learned in seminary it's never release live animals during a worship service that is a mistake that you do not make twice. <laughs> the question is, does God fit in the box? Now, a lot of us would like God to fit in the box. A lot of us would like a nice, t- nice, tidy, orderly God, a God that we fully understand, a God who completely agrees with us. Some of us want a God who gives us what we deserve, a God who blesses the good people, a God who curses the bad people, a God with strict standards, a God with clear guidelines, a left-brain God, a by-the-book God, a God who keeps score. Others of us want a God that doesn't give us what we deserve. A God who just kind of goes with the flow. A God who is a God without wrath. A God without judgment. Frankly, a God without a lot of opinions. A God who just wants you to be a better you. And then we read a story like this. And we quickly discover that God doesn't fit in the box. In this story, we have divine judgment, we have divine mercy, we have an avenging angel, we have animal sacrifices, God sends a plague that kills 70,000 people. And then, at the last moment, he appears to change his mind. Eugene Peterson, who gave us the message translation of the Bible, observes, this story keeps us alert and receptive to divine mystery. It shakes us out of our cultural preconceptions. It stands in the way of distilling the Bible into predictable, moralizing anecdotes. God will not fit into our idea of how we think that God should act. But if we stay with the story long enough, all the way to Jesus, we find that God is more, not less, better, not worse than what we expect. I like that. God is more, not less, better, not worse than what we expect. He is completely righteous. He will not let sin go unpunished, whether it is sin that we commit or whether it is sin that is committed against us. And yet, He is also completely merciful. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. If you're taking notes this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this story down by dividing it into two scenes. In scene one, David's sin will show us the justice of God. And in scene two, David's sacrifice will show us the mercy of God. So scene one, David's sin shows us the justice of God. God is just. He is holy. He's righteous. And then in scene two, David's sacrifice shows us the mercy of God. God is gracious. God is kind. God does not give us what we deserve. And that's good news. God is always righteous. God is always merciful. God is often unpredictable. He's not safe, but he's good. We see that in our final installment of the life of David. Scene one. David's sin and the justice of God. Verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people... That I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, "May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still sees it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? Now the text makes clear that David sinned by doing this census. He sinned by counting the people. The question is, why? Why is it sinful to count the people? Why is it sinful to keep records? Every week, we count you. Wouldn't it be terrible if God sent a plague on you because we counted you? You say, I didn't even do anything. I was just sitting here. Someone counted me, and now there's a plague breaking out in the congregation. So why is this sinful? Why is it wrong? Here's the answer. It's not the counting counting is not the issue. There's nothing inherently sinful about taking attendance. There's nothing inherently sinful about keeping orderly records. If so, we should probably do a special evangelistic outreach to accountants because that's all they do all day long is they keep orderly records. David's counting was sinful, not because of the counting, but because it's a symptom of a much deeper spiritual problem. The real question is, what kind of king orders a census? What kind of person is David becoming? The census shows us a number of things about David's heart. The first thing we see is that he was becoming an arrogant person. He counted the people because of pride and conceit. He counted the people for the same reason that rich people count their money the same reason that wealthy people go online and check their balances and their investments day after day and multiple times a day he counted the people for the same reason that beautiful people are constantly looking at themselves in the mirror and taking pictures of themselves looking at themselves in the mirror and posting those pictures on instagram so other people can look at them looking at themselves in the mirror Arrogance, pride, conceit. Arrogant people use numbers and metrics and statistics to measure their success and to establish their worth by comparing themselves to other people. Driven by pride and its cousin insecurity, we constantly do what David did. We constantly ask ourselves, Who has the biggest house? And who drives the fastest car? And who's getting the best grades? And who's dating the prettiest girl or the cutest guy? And who has the most success? And who has the most fame? Who pastors the biggest church? Ouch. And who has the most followers? And who has the most subscribers? How many do you have? More than me? David took a census because he wanted to say, Look at me. Look at how rich I am. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how successful I am. I am greater than any other king in the ancient world. I am the greatest king in all of Israel. There's never been a king like me. It's toxic, it's poisonous. We were meant to live not for our own glory, we were meant to live for the glory of God. We were meant to say, look at how great God is, look at how wonderful Jesus is, look at me, I am nothing compared to the glory of God. It's not about me at all, it's all about Him. And David was becoming, through this census, an arrogant person. David was also becoming an unbelieving person. Do you remember what David's best friend Jonathan said in 1 Samuel chapter 14? He said, the Lord can save by many or by few. That sentiment could practically be the title of David's autobiography. Do you remember the most famous story about David, the story of David and Goliath? David was the smallest person in all of Israel, and he went into battle against Goliath, a giant, the biggest person in the whole land of Philistia. He had no armor, he had no sword, he had five smooth stones and a sling, and he took Goliath to the ground. Do you remember some of the stories we looked at last week? The stories of David, David's mighty men, Josheb, one man defeated eight hundred Philistines all by himself because God was with him. Eliezer fought against the Philistines hour upon hour upon hour, so long that his hand literally fused to his sword. They had to pry his hand off his sword. How did he survive? God was with him. Shema went into one Israelite village, defended a lentil field all by himself, except he wasn't all by himself. God was with him. David's three mighty men marched straight into hell to the city of of Bethlehem, fighting off Philistine Philistine warriors every step of the way simply to give David a glass of water. How did they do it? The Lord was with them. The Lord gave them victory. If the Lord is on your side, it doesn't matter how big your nation is. If the Lord is on your side, it doesn't matter how many fighting men there are in Israel and Judah. If the Lord is your treasure, it doesn't matter how much money you have. If the Lord says that you are beautiful, then it doesn't matter what you post on Instagram. And if the Lord Jesus says that he loves you, then why do we care if someone likes you on social media? It doesn't matter. It mattered to David. David was losing his faith. And God was not about to let that happen to the king of Israel. He had to intervene. David was also dehumanizing people he was depersonalizing them he was taking flesh and blood human be- beings image bearers of god and he was turning them into statistics abstract numbers on a ledger sheet people are more than numbers people are more than statistics People are more than clients. People are more than donors. People are more than customers. People are more than giving units. People are more than members of a racial group. You are more than your gender. You are more than your ethnicity, whatever it is. You are more than a member of a political party or a political movement. I have a friend. His name is Tony. His name is not J01032. That's the name that the government of California has given him because he is in prison, but that is not his name. He is an image bearer of God. He has value and worth to God. He is a sinner who has been saved by grace. He is our brother in Christ. You see, when people become statistics, you can exploit them, you can manipulate them, you can spy on them, you can abort them, you can abuse them. Gulags, internment camps, concentration camps, mass starvation, mass Uh, incarceration, mass surveillance, you can justify doing just about anything to anyone if you devalue that person and say they are not a person anymore, they are simply a number on a ledger sheet. God could not let that happen to David. He would not allow that to happen to David. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. God knows your name. Jesus, the good shepherd, knows your name. You are not a number to God. You are not a statistic to Jesus. You are a person and he loves you. What else was wrong with David's heart? Well, we see also here through this census that David was building an empire. Notice that he wasn't counting all the people of Israel, he was specifically counting all of the soldiers of Israel. That's why Joab conducted the census. Joab was the commander of Israel's army, the head of the military. Verse 9. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. You see, up until this point in the story, Israel didn't have a standing army. Up until this point in the story, whenever Israel went to war, it was largely a defensive effort against neighbors who had invaded them. And so they would quickly gather up the fighting men of Israel, as many who would, as would come. They would come together. They would fight the battle. They would drive off the foreign invaders. And then they would all return back home to their lives as carpenters and fishermen and farmers. They didn't have a standing army. And now David is saying, we need a standing army. And the first step to forming a standing army is to count the number of fighting men in all of Israel. Why? Why would he do it? Because he wanted to expand his kingdom by force. He wanted to expand his kingdom by invading, occupying, and destroying the surrounding nations of, around Israel. That's what every king in the ancient world would do. They would all count their soldiers because the logic went like this. If we have, for example, 1.3 million soldiers and the, the Moabites or the Amalekites or the Ammonites or the Hittites, the electrolytes or whoever has like 100,000 soldiers, well then naturally we're going to invade them, right? Right? We have more soldiers, and so we invade. It's Darwin. It's natural selection. The strong eat the weak. Except that's not what happens in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the strong are the weak, and the weak are the strong. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, not a terror to the nations, They were supposed to draw people to the God of Israel, not force them to the God of Israel, not enslave them, not abuse them. They were to love them and serve them. Their their kingdom was supposed to expand through conversions because God's kingdom is about love. It's not about hate. It's about forgiveness. It's not about revenge. It's about being constructive. It's not about being destructive. That's the total opposite of the kingdom of God. Now, at first, we read this little detail about God judging the people, and it's a little bit confusing at least it was a little bit confusing to me why would God judge the people after all it was David's census it was his idea and in fact there's a little bit of a hint that God gave him the idea to do the census so how is it that the people responsible for what is essentially God's actions through David the answer is this the answer is they were on board they were completely in favor of this They wanted to crush their enemies. They were more than willing to lend their sons and their grandsons and their their husbands and their fathers to the army so that these other nations which had been invading them and terrorizing them for hundreds of years might feel their force of their revenge. They want payback. So often, even though we have been forgiven, we want the same thing. We want revenge. We want payback. We don't want to forgive. We don't want to let cooler heads prevail. So what did God do? How did he intervene? He judged his own people. He sent a plague that killed 70,000 soldiers. Did you notice that little detail from verse 15? Who died? Not 70,000 people. Not 70,000 women and children, 70,000 men. God struck down 70,000 men, 70,000 of the men that Joab had counted in the census in order to raise a standing army. Why? Because God was stopping them from raising the standing army. He was stopping them from killing and robbing and burning and pillaging their neighbors. He was stopping them from becoming all just exactly like their neighbors were. In some sense, God is protecting the neighbors from the Israelites, but in another sense, God is protecting the Israelites from the Israelites. He's protecting them from becoming something that is abhorrent to God. God disciplined them. For the same reason that parents discipline their children today, love. We discipline our children because we love them. And God disciplines His children, His people, because He loves us. Just think about it this way. Have you ever been to a restaurant or a ball game or some public place and you see some kid who's just absolutely running wild in, in the restaurant or the movie theater, right? They're kicking, they're biting, they're screaming, they're, you know, doing all sorts of nonsense, and the parents are just kind of sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Have you seen this? They're on the phone, they're checking their email, they're doing words with friends or some other game where they don't have to know how to spell, you know? So they're, and they're just completely ignoring their kids who are running wild. Is your first thought, wow, they must really love their kids, That's not my first thought. My first thought is, this kid's going to rob a liquor store someday. (laughs) This kid's going to be a terror to our whole community because their parents did not love them enough to instill simple boundaries and simple discipline on that child. We intervene because we love our children, and God intervenes because He loves us. Now, we know that intellectually, and yet, for some reason, when we read a story like this, we convince ourselves that God should not have intervened the way that he did. We think, well, this is too harsh, this is too brutal. 70,000 people is a lot of people. How could God send a plague like that on the people? Is it too harsh? Is it too severe? I don't think it is. Believe me, the Israelites would have killed far more than 70,000 people, men, women, and children. They would have absolutely slaughtered the nations around them. And so I think God's response is very measured. It's very fair. In fact, it's very reasonable. We do not want a God who doesn't love us enough to right the wrongs of this world. We do not want a God who will allow David to dehumanize his own people. We do not want a God who is indifferent to arrogance and unbelief. We do not want a God who won't stop us from hurting ourselves or other people. Our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God of righteousness. Our God is a God who intervenes in this world in order to make things right. David's sin shows us the justice of God. But that's not all. Scene two. David's sacrifice shows us the mercy of God. Now notice how David responded to all this. He didn't get angry He didn't become bitter, he didn't question God, he didn't become an agnostic, he didn't leave the church. In fact, he ran toward God. He ran towards God's people. His first response was repentance. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David's response to this census is much, much different than his response when he sinned against God in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Back then, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband Uriah in order to cover up his adultery. And then he just went back to living his life. He went back to the palace and he carried on as if nothing had happened at all. He didn't repent until Nathan the prophet confronted him in the palace. In this scene, nobody confronts him. In this scene, his conscience confronts him. In this scene, the Holy Spirit confronts him. In this scene, he begins to feel guilty, not because he's been caught, but because he knows that his sinful actions have grieved a holy God. As part of this repentance, he confessed his sins completely, he took full responsibility. He didn't blame anyone else. He didn't blame Joab. Hey, Joab, why didn't you stop me? You should have tried harder. He didn't blame the people. The people wanted this God. I was just doing what the people wanted me to do. He said, I have sinned greatly. In what I have done, I have acted foolishly. Do you hear all the eyes? That's a lot of eyes. Three in like two sentences. He didn't confess confess his sins in French. You know, we, we, we did this and we all did. No, no. There's no we's. No we's. I, I did this thing. Full responsibility. That is true repentance. And then, having fully, completely confessed his sins to the Lord, he turned to the same Lord for mercy. Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. And then finally, he accepted the consequences of his sin. God gave him three choices. He said, you can have three years of famine, you can have three months of war, or you can have three days of a plague. Now, which would you choose? I was talking about this passage with someone this week, and they said to me, well, of course I'd pick the plague. It's the shortest one, right? If God says, I can judge you for three years, or three months, or three days, then naturally, you choose the three days. Hello? It's a very logical answer, but that's not David's logic. Listen to what David says here. Listen to his reasoning. Verse 14, Then David said to Gad, the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man. Think about it this way. If you were a child, do you want your mom or your dad to discipline you? Or do you want some stranger that you've never met to discipline you? I think most people, if you had a healthy mom or a healthy dad and you don't come from an abusive family, certainly, you would want your parents to be in charge of the discipline because your parents love you your parents will be merciful to you and that's what God did David made his choice he said I'll take the plague may God be merciful to us and he was the angel of the Lord after he had struck down 70,000 fighting men came to the city of Jerusalem and God said verse 16 it is enough now stay your hand Verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad the prophet came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That's what David did. After a little bit of back and forth where Aruna wanted to give him the land and David wanted to buy the land, he bought the land, he built an altar, and he offered up sacrifices to the Lord. A spotless animal died for the sins of the people. Verse 25, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, what you might not know is that this land, Aruna's land, the place where David offered up this sacrifice, the place where an innocent animal died for the sins of the people, the place where God was merciful to his people, Israel, became the very place where Solomon built the temple of the Lord. This field of grace, this field of mercy, became the place where heaven and earth would meet. Do you see what God did? See, David had said, I am the shepherd. I'm the shepherd of the people of Israel. Don't punish the sheep. Instead, punish me. And God said, you're half right. He said, you are not the good shepherd, David. I am the good shepherd. You will not die for the sins of the people. I will die for the sins of the people. And when Jesus came, Jesus, the son of David, that's exactly what happened. Jesus, who, interestingly enough, called himself the true temple in John chapter 2. The place where heaven and earth meet, inside one person, fully God, fully man, the place where sinful people are reconciled to God, also called himself the good shepherd in John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. And because of his mercy, because of his sacrifice, sinful people like David, sinful people like Joab, sinful people like us can have a living and active and joyful relationship with the living God. Because of Jesus, God's mercy overwhelms us. Because of Jesus, God's justice does not consume us. See, that kind of God, a God who is fully just and fully mercy, merciful, not from one day to the next, but at the same time, just doesn't fit in the box In fact, the whole universe cannot contain the glory of God. David did many other things that are not written in this book. And Jesus, the son of David, did many things that are not written in these books. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of David, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. What a king. What a savior. Let's go to God in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you that though you take sin very, very seriously, often much more seriously than we do, you also take mercy much more seriously than we do. We thank you, Lord God, that we are not consumed by your justice. We thank you, Lord God, that you have provided a substitute who died for us on the cross. It is in his name we pray. Amen.